0: Welcome to a special edition of Big Ideas from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm your host, Dan Seed, and today I'm joined by Dr. Rodney Rohde, the chair of the Clinical Laboratory Science Program here at the university. And Dr. Rohde is one of the key figures in Texas State's Translational Health Initiative. We have Dr. Rohde on today to discuss the topic that of course, is on everyone's mind right now. The coronavirus, also known as COVID-19. Dr. Rody is an expert on infectious diseases. Dr. Rody, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be here.
0: Well, let's start with the basics here. Um, what is a coronavirus?
1: Sure. So coronaviruses are actually a group of RNA viruses. And what most people may or may not know is roughly 25 to 30 percent of these cause the common cold. So there's four that kind of cause the common cold. There's one that you may have remembered back in the early 2000s called SARS. It's really the first one that uh, gave the world a scare because that one was killing roughly 10% in their case fatality. And then in the mid-2000s, we had a strain called MERS, which is Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. That one really got our attention. It pushed that fatality rate up to 30 35%. But they were somewhat contained in the global kind of space, and then it kind of went quiet. Uh, it, there were cases popping around, but kind of went quiet. And then certainly we noticed what happened in early January this year when this uh, second strain, which the virus is actually called SARS-CoV-2. So it's like a second variety of SARS. And then COVID-19 is actually the kind of the disease it causes.
0: And so what makes this particular strain different from all the others, or, or is it?
1: You know, it's... it's it's genetically really not a, a ton different, but I think what's caught people by surprise is the geo kind of political spread that's going on with it, both, both in reality. You know, so I, I say this a lot, and I've said it many times this past month, that viruses are going to virus, and that's what they do. They can't survive outside of a host, so most viruses need a human being, an animal, even a plant, and they really exist for one purpose and that is to infect, multiply, and reproduce in that host, and then jump to the next host. Rarely, if ever, has mankind stopped a virus or really any microbial outbreak, with the exception maybe of smallpox, with massive campaigns of vaccines. Can we slow it down with those efforts and with other prevention efforts? Absolutely. So really, I mean, it's a very... It's a somewhat like influenza, but there are differences, of course. Influenza and coronavirus are both RNA viruses, which means they mutate uh, more rapidly. And so we're kind of keeping an eye on that. But so far, really, the only thing I think that's caught us off guard is the kind of rapid spread out of the epicenter of China in Wuhan, China. And that's really what's got our attention. So
0: that hopscotching, if you will, around the globe where it started in China. And we've seen these large scale outbreaks in Iran, of course, Italy. Um, now, that does strike you as different or, or odd, I suppose, and does make you take
1: special notice. Why specifically? You know, it does. Uh, and I really, so that's an, that's a kind of it depends answer for me because what's happening with this, so what the general audience needs to understand is that we are looking for it. When you test for an agent, you find it. So if I go out and look for another strain of the common cold right now, it will be all around us. So I just want the public to understand that if you're looking for it with a specific test, you will find different types of agents. I look for antibiotic resistance, MRSA. 250 people die every day in this country for that. It's all around us in our environment. So looking for it, testing for it will make those cases come up. And so it's kind of a guarded answer for me because, yes, we're seeing it jump all over the country and the world, but if we were looking at every single case for flu, RSV, MRSA, any other acronym you want to throw here from the microbial world, we would detect it in different populations. Is it serious? Absolutely. Are we monitoring it for the elderly, for the immunocompromised? That's a concern. Those individuals and in those populations and then for my own profession, we're worried about healthcare workers being protected. Because if you lose that frontline responder, you do not replace a nurse. You do not replace a medical lab scientist like myself overnight. That takes years Mm -hmm. of training and and other education in the clinical setting.
0: And I do want to get into the the effect that this is having, especially as you mentioned on older populations, people with uh, compromised immune systems. But talking about this and the monitoring that's going on, the World Health Organization, of course, on top of this, um, and providing those continual updates. And we keep hearing these these words come out um, that I think most of us are unfamiliar with in situations like this. And the World Health Organization has called this, uh, the risk level is, quote, very high. What does that mean?
1: Well, I mean, they have different risk levels. So if you're talking about, so there's different ways to look at this. If you're talking about Uh, travel advisories, that may be something different that you're referring to. So that level four is the highest. And level four means that when you're coming in or out of those countries like China, like Iran now, like uh, Korea and those places, those have reached those high levels. Italy, certainly, you know, they've quarantined the northern part of the country. Um, Again, that is an estimation of the blanketing of cases in an area and the importance of trying to control the spread of the virus into other kind of naive populations. Healthcare wise, I mean, when you start talking about at risk or risk categories, it's kind of a, a variable uh, categorization. And so when we talk about the elderly, we talk about the immunocompromised. And by that, just so the audience understands, that's a, a word that can really include people like uh, transplant patients that have just received a kidney. Mm-hmm because they're sometimes on immunosuppressive drugs, knocking down their immune system. It could mean cancer patients on chemotherapy. It could mean newborns in some cases because they're not really developed as far as an immune, um, their full maturity for their immune system. So it can be a variety of things. So far with this one, obviously the highest risk right now as of today that we're seeing is in the elderly as evidenced by the nursing home in Seattle, which is, you know, a really sad situation. And those really 60 and above are kind of being looked at as being a little extra diligent with travel, with large gatherings. You know, you hear the term social distancing and mm-hmm. things like that. So, you know, really pretty smart for that population to kind of think about things before they move into those high volume populations. But really right now, you know, college age, teenagers, even maybe younger preteen, you know, I'm, I'm 52, so I think I'm still in the safe category <laughs> here. But even I, you know, I'm, I'm being more diligent mm-hmm. um, for certain things, including high-touch surfaces and, you know, all those sorts of things we've been talking about. So it, it's a variable, and you just have to kind of know to monitor what's happening. Next week, we might be talking about, you know, those 50 and up because we're starting to see a rise in fatalities in that population. Hopefully not.
0: It does seem though that when we're talking about those same kind of populations that, that you just talked about, when we focus in on flu, say, that those are the same groups of people that generally were were more concerned about older people, um, people with the compromised immune system for one reason or the other. But what makes this different or does it from, say, a conventional flu outbreak or flu season um, with regard to the way that it spreads among those individuals?
1: Right. You know, so that's a great question. That's a difficult question that we're still trying to answer and monitor in my own opinion. So in my own professional opinion of doing this for 30 years almost now, I do think there are some similarities. I mean, certainly the way it spread through respiratory transmission. And you mentioned the different populations. The one thing to kind of think about, though, is with influenza. So I'm going to step off here and talk a little mm-hmm. bit about flu. Flu is also seasonal. We're not sure if coronavirus is yet. We really need to wait a year or two to see if it's going to go down in the summer and up in the winter. We can talk about that in a minute if sure. we want to. But flu, we know, does that. But flu is also well-known, as as you may know, that you need a vaccine every year because it changes. It's an RNA virus, and it actually sometimes shifts or drifts genetically, and depending on what it does, you may have a very new, unseen immunological virus like the avian flu outbreak a decade or so ago. That can cause massive problems quickly because it's so new. So similarly, coronavirus, it's brand new. The population collectively has not had a chance to react to it. It's called an immune you know, response to a particular agent. And with time, if it goes through the population, again, I mean, I've seen this with West Nile virus. I've seen it with the first SARS. I've seen it with different strains of flu. What we hope is that a year or two from now, this is another agent that we're keeping an eye on. We may have a vaccine for it in a year or two and that we're talking about a different virus. But but flu, definitely if you look at the last few years, Some years it's kind of normal flu. The vaccine works a little better. The case fatality rate drops a little bit. But because it spreads every year globally, the numbers for deaths are very high. I mean, sometimes in the U.S. we're talking 45,000 cases just in the U.S. So it kind of can get scary when you start looking at that. But it does uh, kill younger people. So if you monitor flu, even right now, Uh, In this area in the U.S., there's been about 125 pediatric flu deaths, which is not getting a lot of attention because of coronavirus. So, you know, there are some differences. Flu is still a killer Uh, globally. We talk about it every year. We're trying to keep an eye on it now uh, with respect to what, what my colleagues do so that people are updating their vaccines. And in a weird way, with the um diligent hand hygiene and all of the attention which is wonderful we you know this is great for public health in a sense that people are doing a better job with that we may see reduced numbers in all respiratory agents this year just because of what we're doing
0: you mentioned the the flu mortality rate among children um i'm a father of two young girls who go to daycare of course me and my wife have talked about this you know our daughter had the sniffles the other day uh, normally your first thought goes to, oh, it's a daycare cold. Right, right. Now, of course, it's like, well, you know, you get that thought right. in the back of your head. But what's interesting about this COVID-19 is that the the mortality rate or, or number of deaths, I guess, among children is really low. Yes, sir. So, So why is that? Do we know yet? We, is there an idea as to why they're maybe not presenting with symptoms and then it's not escalating in children
1: so that that gets into some details of some pretty deep (laughs) science sure but we can talk i'll try to talk about it generally Um, and we are still learning Mm -hmm. so nobody knows for sure but viruses and other microbes have things called virulence genes and what that means is that for some viruses or even bacteria or fungi or whatever you're talking about some will have more virulence they'll be more pathogenic more disease causing and if they are certain types of things that are more detrimental to your body, to your organ systems, for instance, if they start affecting your kidneys or things like that, really high fevers that you can't control, those are going to have more problems. We're, we're really not sure right now with this particular strain. We're going to need to watch it. And you also need to have enough numbers in the, in the pediatric sure. population to kind of study that. If you look at 10 cases and make drastic um, predictions from that, you're going to look foolish probably later down the line. But, but, you know, my wife's a pre-K teacher, and we have these conversations at home. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm the guy they talk to at, at her school, and, you know, there's a lot of worry and concern. But what I continually tell them right now is that it doesn't seem to be affecting children, preteens, teenagers, kind of normal, healthy people, and to not panic if they see symptoms, uh, but they may want to more thoroughly tell that child to stay home, you know, make sure they educate the parents, and just play it safe right now. Um, and you would want to do that with the flu. Sure. Right? Of course. with RSV or pink eye, for that matter. Right. And please stay home. <laughs> right. Right? <laughs> please stay home. You know, and we know humans, and I mean, I, w- I had two children that are grown up now, and sometimes it's difficult to do that because you're like, mm, you know, is that an allergy? Right. You know, or is that... A- and, you know, as a medical lab professional, I'll tell you, and this is my go-to statement that we can't always do, but you really don't ever know what you have unless you test for it, if it's possible to test for. So that's a, that's a tough thing, you know, because I'll hear my parents, I'll hear my cousins, I'll hear my friends say, oh, when they're sniffling and sneezing all in my room, (laughs) you know, that it's just allergies. And, you know, I'm like, right uh, backing up right? Uh, right just because i can't help it because i know they have no way of knowing so you know as a parent of two small children or teenagers or anyone else certainly you want to be educating them talking to them about it you know especially children i've been talking to my wife's pre-k teachers because they're scared and so even the idea of kind of just talking to children about uh, what's what is a germ and kind of what's the typical thing. Usually they're not killing people, right? So to kind of be careful maybe to the exposure for social media for small children and, and young teenagers and just kind of keep an eye on that because that's having an effect too on young people.
0: And I do want to get into that because I know that that's one of your interests is the effect of media and social media on populations in regard to situations like this. But sticking with that idea where you talked about, you know, people come in and they say, oh, I've just got allergies or, or a cold – the symptoms that we're seeing with this mimic what we would see in allergies and they do. cold. So at this point, what should we be looking for? What's the, what's the point where the average person in central Texas, we're in the getting into allergy season. Yes, sir. And, um, I think I have allergies right now. Um, but, but we're getting into that season and we're still in flu season. We're still in cold season. So at what point do I go? I need to go in.
1: That's a great question. That's a great question. There's some great, so I'm going to, you know, speaking of media, I'm going to always kind of go to CDC or WHO or, or other uh, healthcare entities that are reputable like the Mayo Clinic or Johns Hopkins, you know, those types of places. Um, the first thing I would recommend, again, is what we worry about most uh, in incidents like this is so much exposure to the news and what's happening is that you don't want to overwhelm ERs and clinics and hospitals. So there's something called surge capacity that we worry about. We just can't handle 5,000 people showing up at CTMC in San Marcos. Mm -hmm. There's just, that would be a nightmare. And so what we try to do is tell people to kind of, again, use common sense to stay at home, self-isolate when they start seeing fever. And, you know, really thinking about that with respect to how they might monitor those symptoms so certainly if you get really high fevers uh, shortness of breath with this particular virus because that could mean pneumonia is developing which is fluid buildup in the lungs that's a time to do something about it and during those instances what you want to do is probably right now what's being said is try to call ahead because again we're trying to avoid those particular surge uh, at those places so right now that's kind of what we're doing Certainly, if you have an emergency uh, with respect to a child or anyone, you know, having, you know, weird symptoms or they're passing out, for instance, Mm -hmm. or, you know, something where they're really having some problems of fainting or high fevers, and then, yes, you might want to call 911 and do those things, but really, I just don't think that's going to happen with coronavirus. Mm -hmm. It's very much like a cold virus. It's very much presenting like that, and- if I might just mention, you know, this morning I looked at the numbers. Um, globally, right now, according to Johns Hopkins' website, we have about 121,000-plus cases globally. About 4,400 deaths globally. In the U.S., 25 deaths. The news is reporting a 1,000 or more cases. CDC is showing about 647 because they're showing confirmed tested mm-hmm. numbers. I mean, in... So if you think about that and this is not to downplay this but 4400 and 121,000 if you look at those numbers if you do the quick math that's about a 3.6% case case fatality rate that's about 118,000 117,000 people recovering so sometimes it's important to flip that that mm. that um, story a little bit is it serious are we concerned about the elderly absolutely but people are living through this every day, just like they are the flu, just like they are other infections. The body is an amazing thing. The immune system is an amazing thing. We don't wish a major illness on anybody, but it's kind of the game. Again, with viruses, you're gonna deal with this. It's gonna to continue to go. I keep telling people expect cases to rise in the US. They're gonna climb. It's gonna happen in Texas. It's gonna happen everywhere. We're looking for it and it's coming. You know, and it's probably already out there because we just don't have enough test right now, Mm. which may be another story. The interview with Dr. Rodney Rohde on the novel coronavirus will continue in Episode 4 of Big Ideas TXST, available soon. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz. Special thanks goes out to Dan Schumacher.